Today the message is entitled, Jesus Walks and Suffers and Dies. Like last week, it's not going to be exactly the most uplifting section of scripture you've ever heard, but don't worry, next week it gets much better. This week is going to be, it gets worse here before it gets better. Next week will be better. We're going to be bouncing around uh, all the different gospels again, so I apologize for that. If you're following your Bible, you're going to get a little exercise today, going back between uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament a few spots, so... But it's okay, if you don't have your Bible, you don't want to jockey back and forth, it'll all be up here on the, on the screen. So we're going to jump into the story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. So we're catching back up. Last week we saw Jesus being, or we read about Jesus being beaten, uh, probably within an inch of his life before he'll be taken to the cross. And so he's on his way to the cross on that journey he's making right now. We pick up in the Gospel of Mark, so. He's been beaten, he's been mocked by the soldiers, he was, remember he was dressed in a purple robe, crown of thorns, all those things has happened to him, now he's going to take his, take his cross to the place of crucifixion. And most likely what happened is they went, the person who was, was going to be crucified didn't carry their entire cross with them, they just took the cross member. So that cross member was sometimes kind of tied to their shoulders and their arms wrapped around it, and they were, they were, um, they had to take that cross member to the place of crucifixion was normally outside the city gate, so it could be a little bit of a walk, and that cross member could weigh probably up to 100 pounds, so it wasn't exactly an easy task after you'd already been beaten within an inch of your life to now take that section of the cross with you to, to the place of crucifixion, and, and we're going to see what happens as Jesus attempts that. So a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Obviously, Jesus, after the beating he took, no longer had enough strength to get that cross all the way to the place of, of crucifixion. So he started with it on him, probably had stumbled and fallen enough times uh, where they, they, and poor Simon is just happening to, to come into the city for Passover, and he gets chosen to, to carry that cross, which would make any of us a little nervous, right? We might, you make sure you get there, you want to make sure who's, who's been found guilty and who hasn't been found guilty, Right? I mean, if he's carrying the cross and he gets there, he's like, i, I got to get out of here as fast as I, as I possibly can. So Simon is, is forced to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way for him because Jesus doesn't have enough strength, doesn't have it in him to, to carry it anymore. So they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would, would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, simply the king of the Jews. So there's a few things I want to look at just in this little section. One, notice that he's offered wine mixed with myrrh. Now that was, the Romans weren't terribly kind people, but they weren't absolute barbarians. And so what they would do is they'd give you a drink of wine and myrrh. The idea was that was to ease some of your pain in crucifixion. Now, it's not going to take the pain away. Crucifixion is a terrible way of dying. But they would give you this drink to kind of sedate you a little bit so that the it wouldn't be quite as painful for the death. And Jesus refuses it, which is powerful, I think, for us to realize that Jesus is willing to take on every bit of the pain for you and me. He wants no, none of his senses dulled for this experience. He's willing to take all of our hurts and pains with him to that cross. The other thing I want to point out to you is, is his mother Mary has followed him along, and some other women, and, and the Apostle John, as we'll see, have followed him to the cross. And I want you to be, put yourself in Mary's shoes for a minute. I want you to go back to the Christmas story. When those wise men 
Magi from the East come in our Christmas story. They bring him three gifts. What are they? Gold, frankincense, and what? And myrrh. And if you're Mary standing there along the, the, the route to the cross and you're following your son and you get to the foot of the cross and they offer him a wine, drink of wine mixed with myrrh, can you imagine what, what she remembers? She goes back to the birth of Christ. And those wise men who are celebrating him bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here at the crucifixion, the myrrh is offered to him not because they're celebrating him, but because they're going to kill him. You can just imagine poor Mary's heart as it's just ripped from her chest as she watches all what has happened to her son and has to think back to 30 years, 30-something years prior to that moment when the wise men were celebrating Jesus. And now people who are supposed to be wise aren't. They're not celebrating Jesus. They're doing the exact opposite. And so they crucify him. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible way of dying. Uh, most likely they drove the nails, probably not through his actual hands, but most of what we've seen through history. And they've actually found some bodies that had been crucified at one point. The nails were likely driven through the two bones in your arm here in your wrist because your hands simply can't hold you up on a cross for very long. All the little bones won't, won't support you. And then also through your ankles. Uh, sometimes they simply used rope. But sometimes they used rope and nails, and for this gospel story, they've used nails, and maybe ropes as well, but the nails are driven through Jesus' wrists and his, his ankle, and the ankles were probably crossed, and, dro- and the nail was drove through both ankles at the same time. Um, to try to understand that kind of pain is, is unimaginable for us to, to experience. Uh, at, at the library in the Bible College, they actually have some nails that were found in, in Israel that probably date back towards the first century, and, and they're, they're absolutely insane to look at their length and their, and their width. It's, it's unimaginable to, to, to imagine what Jesus experiences just in that one moment after he's already been beaten within an inch of his life. And remember, as we go through this story, and it's a hard story to read, that Jesus is doing this, all of this, for you and me. We're going to move on now to Psalm 22, and I want you to Psalm 22 is going to appear time and time again in this section, and I want to show it to you because it's a psalm of David, first of all, but the, the echoes of what happens to Jesus in Psalm 22 are, are, are just are, are amazing. And if you get a chance this week sometime, I'd, I'd like you to read Psalm 22 in its entirety. We're not going to do it here because we don't have that time, but Psalm 22, just it, many times we're going to see it, it just speaks towards the crucifixion, what's happening. If you remember, as Jesus is crucified, the soldiers that brought him there are, are dividing his clothes. Right? They're, taking, they're taking his clothes because they're worth something. And then they took his, the one garment he wore was a kind of a one piece, almost like a, like a shawl type thing, but it's all the way to, your, to the ground. And so they don't, they don't divide that piece. They, they gamble for it to see who got it because that was probably the one piece of his clothing that was worth the most. If they tore up, it was worth nothing in the story. And seeing Psalm 22, King David says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Well, what is Jesus experiencing on the cross? That very same thing. You're going to see more of Psalm 22 in just a little bit. We're going to move to the Gospel of Matthew now. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 38. It says, two rebels were crucified with him, right? That's why we have these three crosses here. One on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. 
if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It's not as though we can just let Jesus painfully hang on the cross. We have to mock him while he's there, right? That's kicking someone while they're down. And this is, this is probably one of the hardest passages to read and to imagine that Jesus, some of the women who follow Jesus, including his mother and the Apostle John, are here hearing this, right? It's bad enough that Jesus has to hear it as he's hung on the cross already, but they're mocking him. And what I find rather interesting is, is that they're, they're calling for him, say, hey, if you really are who you are, why don't you come down off that cross? And Jesus can't. Because his mission is, it culminates, it reaches is its pinnacle at the cross. The reason he came was to die for your sins and my sins. And how often do people in ignorance say things? And, and what's happening here is absolute, it's absolute ignorance from, from people who don't understand his purpose. If he comes off the cross, you and I are dead in sin. If he doesn't stay there, the mission isn't accomplished. What God sent him for doesn't happen. And you or I are in a world of hurt. He has to stay there. It isn't, remember, it isn't just nails that's keeping Jesus to the cross. It's love that holds him there as well. His love for, for you and I. We're going to come back to Psalm 22 again. Look what Psalm 22 says from King David. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now that language, if we go back a second, is not, it's not like kind of, sort of. It's literally almost word for word of what the insults that are, that are hurled at Jesus. Psalm 22 says, All who see me mock me. What's happening to him in verse 41 here? In the same way, chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Psalm 22 says, They hurled insults, shaking their head. Verse 38 says, Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 39, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Trust in the Lord, Psalm 22 says, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. What do the elders and the teachers of the law say? In verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him. See, the Psalm 22 beautifully shows us that what's happening to Jesus was, was predicted. It's what had to happen to Jesus. This was God's, God's plan all along. And so we echo the words of Psalm 22, the psalm in which David's in trouble and seeking God as well. Then some of the, probably some of the most beautiful words ever uttered from the mouth of anyone ever happens in Luke 23. As they're mocking Jesus, as they've crucified him, as they've beat him within an inch of his life, as he hangs there on the cross, he says words that will ne- would have never came out of my mouth. I promise you that. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. You need more powerful words than that, and I don't, I don't know what more you can, can have. As someone who has been found guilty of a crime he didn't commit, it was paraded in front of all kinds of people, right? Herod and Pilate and the, the high priest. As they slapped him, as they spit on him, as they mocked him, as they had him beaten and scourged on, with, with no limit to the violence as they made him and forced him to carry his cross 
and he couldn't do it anymore. And as they crucify him, as they, as they drive nails through his wrists and through his ankles, and now as they sit there and they mock him as he hangs there dying, and his thought, Jesus' thought is, man, we should forgive these scumbags. That's not my thought. I've got words that aren't appropriate to use in this setting for those people, right? I mean, that would be my response to them. And Jesus, showing his, he's shown his man side, right, his flesh side in this. He's gotten weak from the beating. Now shows his divine side. And he's telling us the purpose of all this that's happening is all for the idea of forgiveness. And so Jesus, as he hangs there on the cross, and he shouldn't be in a, in a spirit of forgiveness is, and says to them out loud, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. And those words, those words are powerful. I wonder what effect those words, well, we're going to see what I think that effect of those words had on the cross to some people who were witnesses of it. Pick the story back up in Mark 15. It says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. Sabatani, excuse me, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. We saw in the Luke passage some of the most beautiful words you'll ever hear, Father, forgive me, and some of the most haunting words you'll ever hear. And this, this verse, verse 34, I have spent days meditating on this verse because it, it pierces me, I don't know about you, right to my heart. As Jesus hangs there for you and me, and he takes the punishment, as, as all the sins of the world are, are thrust on his shoulders, and the Father has to leave him, because the Father cannot be in the presence of sin, Jesus, for the first time in his existence, which has been forever, it feels a separation from, the, from his Father. And the relationship has changed. And as he hangs on the cross, he utters these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Also taken from a psalm by the way. Jesus, while the pain of everything he's experienced is unimaginable, of crucifixion, of being beaten, of all those things, I believe the the worst pain Jesus feels on that cross is the separation from the Father. And the same is true for us. There are so many of us on this world who are separate from the Father and who are feeling a deep and utter pain all the time and a void in their life. They just don't know what it is. They can't Put their finger on it. I think for you and me as as Christians, as we've drawn close to the Father only because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we have to point other people to that. Of saying, hey, if if you feel separate, if you feel like there's a void, if you're missing something, I've got a fix for you. There's a remedy. It's the Son who will lead you to the Father. And in this moment, Jesus feels all of that on his shoulders. One other thing I want to point out to you is that the scripture tells us, Mark tells us, and all the other gospels the same, that, that there's darkness that comes over the, over the Jerusalem area for three hours, from noon until three. And I think it's, echo, there's no accidents in the Bible. It's echoing something I think that's really important. Remember that as they're, they're celebrating the Passover, as Jesus is, is crucified, right? I mean, that's the, that's the timing of it. And I, want to, I want you to echo back to Exodus, to the ninth plague, in Egypt. Remember what that ninth plague was? It's darkness. This is what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 10, 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, for three hours, darkness comes. In Egypt, the ninth plague was for three days. Here, it's three hours. Now, the Jewish people are celebrating Passover. Passover celebrates what? The tenth plague. Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all firstborn of the cattle as well. And Jesus is on the cross. And who is Jesus? He's the firstborn son. He's our Passover lamb. And as the firstborn son hangs on the cross, darkness, darkness reigns. But only for three hours. Darkness is winning as Jesus is crucified, but just for a little while. Remember, darkness in Egypt lasted three days. How long is Jesus in that tomb? Yeah, that's not a coincidence. Continue the story in Luke 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, he looks at Jesus as he hangs on that cross next to him. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus offers some hope to the hopeless, just like he offers hope to you and me. And again, some, some more beautiful words echoed from the cross. Jesus answers him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gives the hope to this man on the cross that death is not the end. That death, that evil, that darkness will not win. That light, that God will, will conquer all things. And that's what Jesus is doing for us here on that cross. Continue the story in John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which is John. John writes the Gospel of John. You don't, in the ancient world, you didn't mention yourself in your own book, right? That kind of appeared a little bit arrogant. So when you hear in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's talking about himself. John is Jesus' cousin. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby. He said to her, woman, here is your son. To the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I put this in this story because as Jesus hangs on the cross, suffering one of the worst punishments you could ever suffer, he's thinking of others all the while. He talks to the guy who initially was, was mocking him. If you remember the story, uh, the very first passage read that both, both criminals are mocking Jesus to start out with, and then one of them comes to their senses, which is a great story for you and me. No matter how far and how long we go away from God, God's always ready to take us right back, right? But both criminals are mocking him, and then the one says, no, enough, enough of this, I know who this guy is, and changes his mind. And what does Jesus offer to him? Words of hope. As he's hanging on a cross, dying, suffocating to death. 
And he looks down and sees his mother there and sees John. And says, man, she can't be alone. Most people believe at this point that Joseph has passed away. We don't know how or why. He's never mentioned the gospel, so it's outside of the birth of Jesus. And so some, somehow Joseph has most likely passed away. And Jesus has other siblings, but they're not really mentioned now. They'll be mentioned later. And so Jesus has concern for his mother as he dies. He says, John, you take her into your home and you care for her. And John says, absolutely. And so I put that in there to show you that even in, in Jesus' darkest moments, He's looking towards the better and the will of, the, of those around him. And we can do the same thing. It is hard to look past ourselves in the midst of trials, in the midst of hurts, in the midst of pain. It is hard to break up the pity party. But I believe we can do it. We have that spirit of God who resides in us that will help us look towards others, even in the midst of our own hurt and our own pain. Jesus is our, our great example of it. Let me continue in the Gospel of John. It says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Three little words Jesus utters, and they're maybe some of the most powerful words that we've, that the world's ever heard. Because when Jesus says, it is finished, he's not just talking about himself. As he dies on the cross and takes the punishment for our sin, for our, our bad deeds, for the things and the times in which we've gone astray and gone our own way, to empty the skeletons from our closet. And when Jesus says, it is finished, I believe him. And so when you and I hold on to guilt and shame from the things we've done and the people we've been, what we're telling Jesus is, it's not, it's not finished, Jesus. Jesus says it is that it's finished. And while we should strive with every fiber of our being to follow his will and to do what he asks us and to follow his commands, when we don't, when we sin and when we fall short and when we mess up, he comes back to us and goes, guys, it's already been paid for. The debt has been paid. It is finished. And so guilt and shame those things don't come from God. They come from our enemy. Because guilt and shame is me saying, God, I don't trust you enough that you handled this sin. I need to take care of it too. I need to feel bad about it or it's not really, I don't, it's not really repented of if I don't feel a little guilty for it. And God says, it's finished. It's done. It's over. The debt has been paid. So you and I can live in freedom and we can take the heavy, heavy burden and weight of sin off of our shoulders because Jesus put it on his. And he kept it there at the cross. And so when he says it's finished, he means it. I want to point out a little detail to you 
that I think John includes for a reason. When Jesus asked for a drink of the wine of vinegar, which is just cheap wine, they put a sponge, they fill it with the wine of vinegar, and they put it on something. And the rest of the Gospels don't tell us exactly what they put it on. It's a stick. It's not. But John, John includes a detail in here. And notice what, he, what it's on. Because they put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant. It's a rather... That's, that's, that's a quite a bit of detail, right, that we don't really need to, to know unless we do. I think we do. Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of the Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And that blood on the doorpost kept that angel of death from coming and killing their what? Their firstborn sons. And John says that a, that a hyssop plant is used to give Jesus his final drink. And of course it is, because what are we echoing back to? Guys, this is Passover time. And Jesus, who's our Passover lamb, is dying for all the sins of all mankind. And he's leading a brand new exodus. He's the new Moses. He's just better. Moses led the Israelites from slavery, from sin in Egypt, actual physical slavery. And Jesus is leading us from being slaves to sin and death. No longer do we have to live that way. Do we have to let sin reign in our lives? Because Jesus paid the price for us. And so, of course, they use a hyssop plant in which the Israelites used to dip blood of the lamb and sprinkle on the doorposts. And what is God doing? He's sprinkling the blood on the doorposts of our hearts. Saying, I want you more than anything, and I'll do anything to get you back. And you've gone your own way, and you've done your own thing, and you've sinned and you've fallen short, and you've looked at my commands and you've broken them on purpose, but none of that matters because I love you. And I'll do anything to get you back. Even if that means the cross. So please don't leave here today without letting that idea sink in. That God will do anything to get you back. Anything. He proved it. On the cross. That there is, he will go, he will spare no expense. And he will go to whatever length he has to go to to bring you back in relationship with him. We broke the relationship. God didn't break it, and yet he goes, let me fix it for you. I got this. Our God is the only God who comes to earth, takes on flesh and blood, and dies for a bunch of scumbags like you and me. The only God in history. And all the rest of them want to leave heaven. Our God will. All for you and for me. Continue the story as we come close to its conclusion in Matthew, chapter 27. At the moment of Jesus' death, Matthew tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is like zombie apocalypse stuff, right? When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The moment of Jesus' death, some some pretty wild things happened. There's an earthquake. There's people coming back to life, right? But the thing I want to point out most to you is, is in 51. 
tells us that the curtain of the temple is torn to. Now, that curtain is, read about its description in the Old Testament, and it's a huge, huge piece of cloth and extraordinarily thick. It's not like you're a curtain in your bedroom that you can just go and rip with your hand. And the detail I want to point out to you is how does it rip? The scripture tells us that it goes from top to bottom, which, mean God, which means God ripped it. If you remember, the, 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 temp, the curtain in the temple separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So the priests would go in the holy place and they'd do their, their, their normal duties. But only one time a year would the high priest with a rope around his waist, because nobody else can go in there, go into the holy of holies. He would take the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to take care of the sins for the people for another year. And, and God says, that's over. It's been paid for. The blood's been shed. And no longer do you need to go into the temple to find me and to pay for your sins because I paid for them myself. Not only that, but the separation between God and his people is gone. Remember, God's Shekinah, his glory, dwelt in that place in a special way. And that's why only one person could go in there once a year because God said, hey, the, the, I'm too holy for you guys just to approach me, just to come casually shossaying in here. You've got, it's got to be special. And now Jesus has died, that, that's ripped in two, which tells us that you and I all have access to this God too. You don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or a minister, that anybody anywhere has access to our God at any time. But all you do is you pray, you talk to him, and he's attentive to you and hears you. See, our God spares no details in the Gospels. The last thing I want to show you about this passage is look at the confession at the very end. Remember, it's the, those guards who were there who are Roman soldiers, they already have someone who claims the title Son of God. Caesar has, since roughly about Julius Caesar's time, have the Caesars claimed to be divine. Right? God in the flesh, the Son of God. They believe that. And so this soldier has believed all his life, or for a while of his life at least, that Caesar is, in fact, the Son of God. That he is who he claims to be. And, and what does he say after Jesus' death? And I think... Part of the reason he says this is because he's been there at the foot of Jesus at that cross and he's heard all that Jesus has said and seen what he's done, how he's offered forgiveness for them as he's cared for his mother, as he's told that thief next to him that they're going to be together in paradise that day. And as he dies, a man who already has a savior, Caesar, gets a new one. One that's much better. And so he says at the very end of this passage in verse 54, surely he, talking about Jesus, was the son of God. And to that Roman soldier we say, why yes, sir, you are correct. He is in, in fact the actual, the real, the authentic, the only one. He is in fact the son of God. Anybody else who claims it is lying, including Caesar. If you don't believe me, Go to Caesar's house today. You can't. They're all dead. You can go to the ruins. You can see them in Rome if you want to. Right? Pretty impressive buildings. I mean, Father Time's knocking them down a little bit. Caesar, who was the most powerful man in all the world at that time, who thought he would reign forever and ever, and his lineage would reign forever and ever after that, they're all dead. They're buried somewhere. So you can go see their grave. You and me, we're in the house of the Lord today because he's alive. Because he's the real deal. 
because he was actually the Son of God. No one else claims that title. History has a way of telling us what's true or not, and uh, history says Caesar was a man like you and me, who died like you and me. Our Savior, death can't hold. We'll look at that next week. We conclude this, this section, passage of John, and then the passage of Luke, and we'll be done. Jesus is dead. His body hangs on the cross. And what generally happened to people who hung on the cross, if they got buried at all, which oftentimes they didn't, they hung there and birds came and dogs came and ate them. And it's gross, I know, but that's what happened. It's history. If they were taken off the cross, they were buried in a common grave, if they were buried at all, just thrown in a grave with no marker. And there's a couple guys who just can't let that happen. And they're not... Peter, or James, or John, or any of the people who follow Jesus, there's some other guys that I want to introduce you to that are pretty neat. So John tells us that later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who early had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, they wrapped, the two of them wrapped it with the spices, the strips of linen, in the strips of linen, excuse me. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are two of the bad guys. Nicodemus, you will encounter in John chapter 3. He's part of that nasty little Sanhedrin people we've been picking on this whole time, and so is Joseph. They're part of the Jewish leadership of the Jewish establishment that has led Jesus to the point of crucifixion. And the lesson I think we learn from that is just when we get our group settled, and just when we get people right where we can peg them, where it makes it easy to judge them, right? Like these Jewish leaders, what is wrong with these guys? Some of the people from that group as individuals will shock us. And that's the problem with any time we take people and we, we lump them into groups. That's a real ignorant thing to do. Let's put, well, all of these people will act this way. And all these people over here will always act this way. Well, we're individuals. God created us that way. We don't do that. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are, are part of the bad guys of the story who aren't bad guys, who have secretly been coming to Jesus, Nicodemus does in John 3, and talking to him, and Joseph had to have done the same, and have yet become followers of Jesus. And they're the ones who go to Pilate, risking everything. Remember, their friends, the people, their, their colleagues, their peers, are the ones who had Jesus put there. And so these guys put everything on the line, and their livelihoods, and maybe even their lives, to go to Pilate and say, hey, we can't let this guy just hang there. We've got to bury him. We have to bury him right. Now, the Jewish way of burial in the first century was they would take a body. The reason that there's 75 pounds of spices is because bodies don't smell good when they decay. And they would wrap spices in with the linen, and they would lay a person on a slab of rock until that person's flesh had gone away. And then they would use what's called ossuaries, or bone boxes. And they would come later, and they would collect the bones, and they'd put those in that box, and they'd mark it with the person's name. And then they would use that tomb for their entire family. And that's how they would be able to, use, to keep using that tomb. And so that's what they're preparing Jesus for. So they, that's why they have all the spices, and they lay them out in there. Preparing him for decay. The great thing is, we don't have to worry about that. 
Decay never gets quite to him. Doesn't stay there long enough for that to happen. We're going to conclude this message, this, this, this Luke 23 passage. The women are going to play a real, real important role next week, so I wanted to show them to you this week. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Now these ladies are going to be the first people we see next week when the, when the tomb is empty. I wanted to conclude with it like this. At the very end of this section of both John and Luke, as they tell this story, there are people who are acting not like we would assume they would act. One, at the foot of the cross, there's one disciple, John, who's Jesus' cousin, who's brave enough to come, and all the rest of the lady, people are women. Now, obviously, his disciples would have been, had a little more fear of threat against them if they come to the foot of the cross, but they still could have came. I mean, they're, they're big grown men. They can handle it. But at the foot of the cross, we see John, his cousin, and a bunch of women. And we have this Joseph and this Nicodemus, who are secret disciples, come and, and boldly proclaim their faith in Jesus by taking him off the cross. I mean, you, you, there's people all around, and they crucified people in their very busy roadways, so they're not doing this in secret or hiding. They're coming out in the open to take his body off that cross. People who weren't likely to be there are there. People who didn't have to be there are there. It tells us, again, I think a great truth. One, of course a bunch of women are there. Women have been the backbone of the church since its inception. That's just true. Women have always been the faithful ones. Men, you are too, just not as much. Which is just a challenge for us as men to step our game up, right? But women have always been the backbone of the church, so of course they're the ones that are there. They've always held the church together. Not always in leadership roles. Most of the time it's behind the scenes. As you're going to see next week, Guess who are the first people at the tomb to check on the body of Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now, it's a bunch of women. The big, strong disciples are, hide, are hiding in a room somewhere with the doors locked. The women are there, risking everything. And so we have to make sure that we understand that everybody has value in God's great kingdom. Everybody. And ladies, if you were, have been sold that you are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, that's a lie. It's just not true. You're first class. It's my, my 91 or 2-year-old professor in Bible college, Dr. Kenneth Beckman, said, you are the crowning jewel of all of God's creation. He saved the best for last. And so Adam came first, and then Eve followed. Looked at Adam and went, this knucklehead doesn't have a chance by himself. I've got to do something. So he made Eve. That's true. Get up, if you don't believe me, get on YouTube and watch people breaking bones. It's almost always men, right? It's like, what, what are you doing? There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. This isn't true. We're equal. We're brothers and sisters. We're co-heirs of this God of ours. And we're going to see that even in a more powerful way next week as we look at the resurrection. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you <coughs> that you were willing to leave the comforts of heaven to come to earth, that your Son took on flesh and blood, 
who was tempted and tried just like we are, who struggled, who experienced unimaginable pain so that you could be in a relationship with us, so that, that you, could, you could come all the way instead of us meeting you halfway and bring us back to you. And God, while we don't completely understand why you would love people like me or like the rest of us, you do. You love every one of us just as we are with all of our faults, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our sin, you love us. Father, there is no greater news in all the world than that. That the one who can speak things into existence, who set the sun and moon in their place, who created the oceans and the dry land, who made mountain peaks and valley low, looks at at us and loves us more than anything. So, Father, help us to be people who spread that message with our actions and our words everywhere we go. The message that God loves every one of us, right where we are. But yet you love us so much that you won't leave us there. That you'll mold us, that you'll shape us, that you'll make us new. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Spirit that lives inside of us. That corrects us, that encourages us convicts us. Father, we're we're so grateful for all that you do for us. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.